Happy Easter. My name is Ross, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and it's a, it's a great privilege to be here. I'll add my welcome to Todd's if you're visiting with us. We're thrilled you're here, and don't believe you're here by accident in any way, and so uh, would love to be able to send you a note and say thanks for, for being here. I, so this morning, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be in John chapter 20. Uh, we've been looking at the, the gospel of John together as a church for several months, and we're in John chapter 20 uh, this morning, and it is the, the resurrection passage in John's gospel. And um, while you're turning there, um, and, and I'll have it on the screen also, but if you want to find it on your phone or if you brought a Bible, uh, that's great. Um, growing up, I remember Easter morning was full of all kinds of drama in my house when I was a child. So I um, am the oldest of five. I'm, I'm the oldest. The youngest is um, Elliot. He's my brother. And then we've got three sisters um, in between. And it was, um, there were, the one way, it was, there was feminine chaos, all right? So there was one bathroom and lots of hair dryers and, and uh, curling irons and usually a lot of tears, okay? But this one particular morning, I can tell you exactly when it was. It was 1984. And I know this, and, and my brother was four years old. And I know the date, I mean, I know the year it was because it coincided with Michael Jackson's Thriller album coming out, all right? Now, I know we're not supposed to talk about him anymore, but that's not my point. But, so, but you got to know what's, what's happening in the background. So it's 1984, my brother's four, and um, my sister, so my mom's an interior decorator, and she liked to dress her kids. She liked to decorate her kids for, for Easter, all right? So my, my youngest sister, Molly, had this dress. And it was, I guess it was a pretty dress. I don't know. I mean, I guess so. Um, but here's what I know. It had accessories. And one of the accessories was a pair of white gloves. You know, it's kind of made the whole thing pop. You, you know what I'm saying? All right, well. It did, so there. I mean, you know, uh, so <laughs> it's, um, they're all in the bathroom, all the girls, and they're curling hair, and they're hair drying and, and crying and doing all the stuff they do before church. And so my brother decides that there's no better way to honor the king of kings than to go dressed as the king of pop. So he takes those white gloves. You remember the one white glove with no fingers? Cuts the fingers out of the accessory. So you see where that's going. Um, I don't remember. I, I remember lots of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I also remember my brother almost met Jesus face to face that Easter morning. So I don't know what kind of drama you had coming here this morning, but I um, am always amazed to see families with little kids show up um, at church on Sunday, and we're glad you're here. And I think it's fitting that we are looking at John's gospel this morning, the very first Easter morning, because it is the account that is actually filled with the most drama. It's filled with tears and weeping. And it's because the characters 
in John's gospel, which they're the same characters in all the other gospels, we're going to see them confronted with a reality of who Jesus is. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to take a couple of verses at a time, but I want to, uh, you to hear how John records this in John chapter 20. It begins this way. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So, so to give you a little context, Jesus in... Um, John's gospel, when all the gospels, comes into Jerusalem. It's Passover. He gets rested. There is this kangaroo court that goes on between the Jews. They hand him to the Romans. They end up executing him to death, death by crucifixion on a cross. So it was Friday afternoon. They crucified him. They needed to get his body off of the cross before the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday. So after making sure that all three of those men were dead, they had uh, broken the other guy's legs, they had um, pierced Jesus' side, a man named Joseph of Arimathea and another guy named Nicodemus, they show up and ask if they are the ones that can take the body of Jesus. They want to give him a proper burial. Joseph's going to bury Jesus in his own a burial plot in this, in this the way they did it was they put him in caves. And so they brought the spices, they brought the, the, the wrappings that you wrap the body in. So they prepared the body and have this sort of makeshift funeral, lay Jesus to rest in the, in the tomb or in the, the, the cave there. Two women are present at the burial, at the at the funeral. One of those is Mary Magdalene, and now she's here two days later, early in the morning before dark, to see what happens. So, the, the religious leaders, they were worried. They were worried somebody might try to come steal the body. They, they didn't know. There, there was all these conspiracy theories going on. They appealed to the Roman government. A guy named Pilate orders that the tomb is sealed with the Roman seal. And he posts guards outside. So that's the scene. So it says this first day of the week. He goes on and says, so, they, so she ran. After she saw the tomb, had, it was um, first day of the week. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've taken him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following in him, and, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back 
to their homes. A couple of things about this I want you to observe. One, in verse 1, it says now, you know, it was the first day of the week. And John here, what he's doing, he's giving us a time marker. And what he's actually doing us is telling us that the third day is actually the first day. Jesus had spent lots of time laboring with his disciples, telling him, look, when we go into Jerusalem, here's how it's going to go. It's, it's Passover, but I'm really the sacrifice. And when we go in there, I'm going to be arrested. They're going to try me. They're going to sentence me to death. I'm going to be executed on a cross. I'm going to lay in a grave for three days. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Jesus was very explicit about this. I mean, he, sometimes he talked in parables, and those were hard to understand. But with this information, this was explicit. And he told his disciples multiple times. And John here wants us to know as he looks back, oh yeah, the third day actually ended up being a, a first day. A, a new age was coming, the, the first day of a different world, a, a new creation was being brought about. That, that well, though it was uh, the, the, the dawn of the day, you know, there was the spiritual dawn and the light was breaking through the darkness and, and Jesus, he suffered all the darkness but was raised in this morning. The light was shining in the darkness. If you notice, it's interesting, John says it was dark. If you looked at the other gospel writers, you'd say they say, well, it was dawn or it was very early. John's the only one that talks about it being dark. And, and it's, it's kind of like John saying, you know, um, it's that saying, it's darkest before when? Dawn. And, and in John's gospel, he uses these symbols, light and dark. They're symbols to, to represent spiritual things. And what he's trying to communicate to us is Mary shows up. She's the, only, she's the first one there. She's the earliest one there. She comes. It's, it's, it's early in the morning, and it's still dark. And he wants us to know, you know, it's more than just dark, literally. Mary, her understanding... She's in a spiritual darkness, and she doesn't even know it. You know, when we talk about the resurrection, <clears throat> it is the most significant event in all of history, if you believe it's true. If you believe it's true, it's the most significant event in all of history. You know, after Jesus is raised, he will um, spend 40 days, and there will be over 500 witnesses to his resurrection. He'll have met with the disciples. He'll have met with other followers. He'll have met down in Jerusalem and up north in Galilee. For 40 days, he travels around and was seen and known. And the Gospels were written in the lifetime of all of those witnesses. I mean, we know, listen, if it wasn't true, somebody would have said, no, 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 that's not true. That's not how it happened. The Gospels don't get contested. They get preserved 
Every one of these men who were his disciples end up dying for what they believe. The resurrection of Jesus sparks this movement called the church that within 300 years in a world that never changed, the church had changed the world. No one could conquer Rome. The church conquers Rome from the inside. Well, who is Mary Magdalene? This is an interesting story. She, she's Mary Magdalene. She's in all four of the gospel accounts. She's the most prominent figure at the resurrection. She's the first one there, and she is central to the story. You know, she goes to see a place. She um, goes to pay her respects. She's going to end up encountering something far greater. The gospel writers introduce us to Mary by where she's from. She's from a place called Magdala. It's at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It was, by all accounts, a Gentile city in the midst of a Jewish world. It was filled with promiscuity. You know, what happened in Magdala stayed in Magdala. That was what that used to say on the sign there when you entered it. It was the center of the fish market for the Roman Empire. It was a seedy place. Most historians, so, so Mary of Magdala, the way she's introduced, the, the, the formula in which she's introduced by, that she was a single woman. And she's from this really bad place, a Jewish woman from a bad place, and she's single. And it's, she's likely, uh, you know, involved in some of the promiscuity in the city, but she has a worse problem than any of that when we're introduced to her in Luke chapter 8. She is possessed with seven demons. It's a lot of demons. In fact, it's a way to say she's completely and fully possessed. You can only imagine what a woman like that experienced in her day-to-day life. What kind of stories come with a life like that? That's how Jesus found her. And so it doesn't take much imagination. You can kind of picture your inner, your inner mind. And Jesus finds her like this, and he heals her. And in some ways, Mary of Magdala is this microcosm. It is this snapshot of what Christianity is all about, of what Jesus came to do. He came to the sick and to the poor and to the ones that have heavy burdens, and he came to heal them and to save them. And she's ground zero of what that looks like. In fact, you can go back. Another image would be going to Genesis 1. You open up Genesis 1, and you see that the earth is chaotic. It's, it's null, and it's void, and, it's, and it's, um, the water covers the deep, and, and, the, and God speaks into it, let there be light, and begins to fill the void and bring order out of the chaos. That's Mary of Magdala. So John said that Jesus was life, and then that life was the light of men. 
And that's what Mary's going to encounter. Why is she there? You know, of all the people, I mean, so she's healed by him. Her life is changed by him. I am sure that she thought, man, I need to know more of who this man is. He saved my life. And so she follows him the rest of his ministry. She supports him with what little she has the rest of his ministry. There are only a handful of people, the smallest handful of people at the cross. She's there. There are two people at the funeral. She's there. And here she is by herself, very first thing on that Sunday morning. You know what's interesting? She would have heard all the teachings from Jesus about being raised on the third day. She was probably there when Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11. She'd seen Jesus do miracles like walk on water and, and multiply a handful of loaves of bread and feed 5,000 people. In fact, he did it a couple of times. And yet, she doesn't come to the tomb because she thinks Jesus is raised from the dead. She's come to the tomb to mourn the loss of the man she loved, of the one she thought was the Savior, the one whom she thought was the hope of the world. And Mary doesn't get it. She came with spices that were meant for a corpse. Some other women will join her a little later. They're going to wonder how they're going to get the, how they're going to get the stone open to get the spices in. She knew certain things. But she could not have imagined that he would have been raised from the dead. Because the reality is, that is something that would be too good to be true. An impossibility that can't quite be possible. That's where she is. Well, you also have Peter and John, and it's interesting. Most of the next eight verses are about them having a foot race to the tomb. And John is clear to tell us he's the faster of the two. Well, maybe Peter, you know, he's the distance runner and John's the sprinter. But anyways, John gets there. He's catching his breath. Peter barges right in and looks. And it says the linens, the ones that Joseph of Arimathea had wrapped him in, were, were laying there. And, and the way that it, the language is, they were laying there perfect. It was like a cocoon. It was like, like a body should have been wrapped in there, but there's no body at all. Completely undisturbed. And, and the, the head wrapping had been taken carefully and folded and laid at one end. The point of these two men, and it says this, they did not yet understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead and that they go back to their homes. It may be that they glimpsed and thought, maybe. I know he said he was going to rise from the dead, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know about this. But even if he did, here's the reality. We deserted him. He goes into his trial. He goes into his crucifixion. The disciples, these men that had spent three years with him, they scatter they're nowhere to be found. In fact, Peter, Peter has deserted him. He has disappointed him, and he has denied him three 
times. And so he looks in and he figures, well, even if this man is resurrected, he wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. So he goes home. Well, in verse 11, John picks up the rest of the story with Mary Magdalene. He's the only one that records this. But it's so significant. Listen to this. So she goes, she sees the tombs open, and she runs away to tell Peter and John. By that time, some other women have come. They've encountered an angel. Mary of Magdala hadn't seen the angel yet. These women leave to go tell the disciples. In the meantime, Peter and John show up. They've been racing each other there. And then Mary of Magdala follows along. These men leave to go home. And we have Mary of Magdala standing there in front of the tomb by herself alone. And she's weeping. And so she decides to look in the tomb. Here's how it goes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she went, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. She's alone at the tomb. She is in the midst of confusion and chaos. She is weeping. She's brokenhearted. She sees an empty tomb. Now she's left in the garden. Peter and John have gone. And there she is in full despair. And she begins to weep. Have you ever been there? You ever been so confused or overwhelmed or felt like the bottom of life had just dropped out and you're paralyzed with sadness? We all know something's wrong. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We know this. I'll tell you, when I, I saw it, I saw it happen when my daughter at the time was five years old. And she realized for the first time, something is not right in this world. My youngest, Catherine, was about five, and we'd taken her, I'd taken her to see this movie, this documentary. I thought it was a good idea at the time. It was called The African Cats. Anybody see this movie? It was a documentary on two, you know, um, cats. So I think one was a, a lion, the other a cheetah. And they followed them, you know, so they, and they had these families. And so, you know, and the two narrators, one was Samuel L. Jackson, narrated one, and then um, Patrick Stewart, also, Jean-Luc Picard, uh, narrates the other one. Yeah, so we're sitting there, and I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, the, 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 you know, the way they filmed, it's beautiful. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then you're there, and all of a sudden, I'm realizing, uh-oh. So this cheetah, she has five cups. And... Um, all of a sudden, you realize these cubs have become prey. And so the mom cheetah goes out and she's fighting for the life of her cubs, but two of the cubs die in the midst of this thing. 
And all of a sudden, I mean, the music changes, the mood changes, and you're there left with the reality that two of her little young cubs have died. And then all of a sudden, John Luke's voice says, and they're not coming back. <laughs> I'm like, we know that. You didn't have to say it. And all of a sudden, man, I can feel Catherine next to me. And, and she, she begins to shake like this. And she's sobbing. I'm like, oh, please, no more. Well, there was more. <laughs> they show this lion. Um, I guess she's a teenager. I don't know. They're making all this stuff up. Who knows what they're thinking? But anyways, the story was compelling in this line. She's seeing her mother, so she's a teenager or whatever, and she's seeing her mom as she's aged. And so what happens when a lion or lion, when, when, they, when they age and they're about to die, they leave the pride and go off by themselves to die. My daughter was five, and she could have told you Something's wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. She didn't know Ecclesiastes 3.11, but she felt it, where it tells us that God has set eternity in our hearts, which means death. Death is absolutely foreign to what we were supposed to be and what we were created for. And sin came into the world, and sin brought death, and since then, something is wrong, and we are born knowing it. And then as we get older, and we begin to look inside, and we go, y'all, that something wrong's right here inside of me. There's not anything I can do about it. I mean, part of my daughter's tears were for the cubs. Part of those tears was because she felt for the first time how fragile life is. I feel it too. I feel it. So Mary looks into the tomb. And here's the deal. Grief does weird things to you, okay? One of the things it does is it, it can cloud everything that's around you. And you, you know, you don't see. So Mary's going to miss a couple of clues. And we're going to cut her a break, okay? One, she misses a clue right in front of her. The stone's rolled away. The tomb is empty. It's likely the guards are either laying paralyzed on the ground or they've already run off. But the grave, the empty grave clothes are there, and yet it doesn't dawn on her. She thinks they've stolen the body. Well, Clue number two is in verse 12. She saw two angels in white. Now, that seems like a big one to me, okay? I mean, they're wearing white robes. I mean, the whole angel deal, okay? I'm not sure she'd seen an angel before, but something about her grief, she can't see the angels. All she can see is that he's not here. All she can see is her despair. 
And so she's weeping, and the angels are looking at each other. I mean, we don't get this in the text. Um, it's in the preacher Bible. Y'all don't have. So it, um, it's a joke. It's imagination. That's all. So they're looking. I'm sure the angels are looking at each other like, why are you, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? So they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him. The angels are like, oh, wow, she's in for a surprise. <laughs> Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you laid him, and I'll, and I'll go take him away. Jesus is standing right in front of her. And he speaks to her. And I guess he's dressed up as a gardener. And she thinks he's the enemy. Where'd you take him? Just tell me where you took him. You know, I think if Jesus, if he just sat back long enough and waited for her to figure it out, th th she'd have never figured it out. She, she, was, she was blinded by her own idea of who Jesus was. Sure, he was powerful. Sure, he did miracles. Sure, he, he loved people in ways they never... Sure, he, he changed my life. But nobody beats death. Listen, you can give death a good run. I mean, you, you can outrun death for 30 years or 40 years or 70 years. Some people can outrun death for 90 years. You know what happens? Death always wins. Nobody beats death. She's not looking for anybody alive. She's looking for someone who's dead. And here's what's crazy. She believes she's in the middle of a disaster. And she's about to become one of the most famous people in all the world because she's the first eyewitness to resurrection, to new creation. She is spiritually blind, and she doesn't really know the real Jesus yet. And I love the way he comes to her. He breaks in so gently. Woman, why are you crying? I mean, for the rest of her life, I wonder if she thought about that question. And then it dawned on her, oh, I think he's, I think it was a double thing he was saying to me. Because he says, who are you looking for? Because she was just, he wasn't just saying, like, so who are you looking for? He's saying, listen, Mary, I know you love me, but your understanding's so small and so tiny. You're not really looking for the real me. You're looking for a Jesus you think exists, and he doesn't. But I do, and I'm here. 
She's not the only one. Listen, in, in Matthew chapter 28, the disciples, they're going to go to Galilee up north. They're going to meet Jesus at the mountain that Jesus told them to meet him. And when they see him in Matthew 28, 16, the text says this, and they worshiped him, which means they fell on the ground worshiping him, these 11 disciples. You know what else it says? And they doubted. Worship and doubt. In Luke chapter 24, it says they disbelieved because of joy. I had to think about that forever. I said, what is it? Disbelieved because of joy? You know what it means? It means we think that things too good to be true. And Jesus wants them to know is better than you could have possibly imagined. You know things that are too good to be true, right? We buy them every year at Easter, pause Easter egg packets. They're happy children, stress-free parents right on the front of it. All you do is boil it, put the dye in, your eggs will come out perfectly. I can tell you, in the years that we have done that, that doesn't happen. That thing's too good to be true. But then there are things that are better than you could have possibly imagined. Remember my son called me a couple of weeks ago. He says, hey, Dad, I've got a got an opportunity to go to the, see the um, Texas Tech championship basketball game. I told you I wasn't talking about it anymore, but you'll see why here in a second. Um, and I'm like, hey, you, then you ought to go. That's great. Oh, my goodness. Are you, how are you able to get a ticket? And how are you going to get up there? Oh, my friend's grandparents said they'd help us do all this stuff. And I'm like, hey, that really sounds great. And um, Well... What he didn't know at the time and later found out, and then lesson I got to find out, um, yeah, so his friend's really awesome. Grandfather sends a chartered plane, picks up two college kids, flies them to Minneapolis, seats them on the 11th row behind the Texas Tech bench. See, there are some things better than you could have possibly imagined. And Jesus is saying that to Mary. So now I want to show you one other thing, and then we're going to wrap up, and we'll get out of here and do our Easter stuff. But in chapter 20, verse 15, they're in a garden. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And I'll tell you what's going on. So they're in a garden, and Jesus is God in the flesh, and he's in the garden, and here's Mary. And so, if the church is the gathering of the men and the women and the children who confess the resurrection of Jesus, then Mary, she's the first of all of us. The church is called the bride of Christ. Jesus here calls her woman. I told you it was a new age. It was a new beginning. If you went back to Genesis chapter 2, what I'd show you is that the very first Adam that God comes to him and he says, it's not good that you're alone. And so he puts him into a deep sleep. And the language is a death-like sleep. And then you know what he does? Pierces his side. And from that creates a bride. And then wakes him up 
out of the death-like sleep. And the first words out of Adam's mouth are woman. Jesus, after rising from the dead and having his side pierced as he heard in the garden, appears to Mary and first, the first of all of us, and he calls her woman. Everything is being made new. Jesus is redeeming everything. And he begins with the most broken and weak and heavy-hearted among us. See, that's the gospel. It doesn't come to the powerful. It doesn't come to those with a pedigree. It, it comes not based upon anything you've done. It's not because of your perfect record or how good you've been. It's because of Jesus' perfect record and all that he is. It's not your past that determines salvation. It's Jesus' past. It's his life that determines your salvation. He came to, came to trade with you to give you his. He took all that you are so that you become all that he is. Well, in verse 16, he says her name. Mary. That's when she recognized it. She turns and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending. I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and all the things that he'd said to her. She thinks it's too good to be true. She wants to grab hold of him. She wants to never let him go. And Jesus says to her in the most loving way, no, 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 Mary, you don't understand. There's more to come. There's more than you could possibly imagine, and there's so much more, and I can't wait for you to experience it all because when I go and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, one, the Holy Spirit's coming to you, but see, I'll be seated here. And every time God sees you, and he's my Father, and now he's your Father. He's my God, and now he's your God. And every time he sees you, he's going to see me. You don't have to cling to me, Mary. I'm clinging to you, and I will never let you go. And he's going to treat you as though you were as holy as I am, as you were as righteous as I am. And you're going to call him Father just like I do. It means you're holy and blameless in his sight. And Mary, there's going to be a fellowship with me possible, a clinging to me possible, beyond anything that you can imagine. Mary, it's not too good to be true. It's better than you can possibly imagine. And oh yeah, by the way, go tell my brothers. It's interesting he doesn't say, and go tell those sorry guys that deserted me and the one that denied me. No, full of love and grace, go tell my brothers. 
Leslie was cleaning some things out this weekend, and she came across an old picture that my oldest daughter had drawn, and the top of it was a, she, she had, um, she drew a rainbow, and I guess it was something they'd done in kindergarten or first grade. It was this writing prompt, and you drew the rainbow, and then the writing prompt said, imagine you could follow the rainbow to an end, write about what you would find there. So she writes, so it's just her and Jay, that's all that we have, two kids. She said, I would find a little sister there because I really, really want one. And I want her to look just like me. Turns out she's a prophet, all right? So (laughs) she ended up having a little sister, looks just like her. Listen, this is exactly what Jesus, I I came and I died and I rose from the dead. And I am seated at the right hand of the Father because I really, really want it. Brothers and sisters, we're going to look just like me. And he says to Mary, I want you to know who you are, Mary. Annie Dillard writes... My whole life I've been a bell. And I never knew until I was picked up, lifted up, and rung. Up until then, I thought I was a paperweight. I thought I was a doorstop. Had no idea if somebody picked me up and rung me, I was a bell. I had no idea what I was. Jesus is saying, I... Like Mary, even if it seems hopeless, even if it seems like you're not really sure who he is, he is calling you by name this morning. He wants you to know him. He wants to pick you up and for you to discover who you are in Christ. And the way that you do that is by believing. Saying, you know what, there's not anything I can do to save myself God had to send his son to become my sin, to take all my sin on him, to die my death, and to raise to new life so I can live with him. It's the simple message of everything in God's word. And he's calling you by name this morning. So if you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. And I'll tell you, to your right, um, the wall to your right, there's a set of doors. If you walked out those doors this morning, there's some elders and some couples out there that if you feel the Holy Spirit working in you this morning, you feel the Word of God doing what it does because the Holy Spirit does what He does with it. And you think, you know, I really want to know more about that. I want to talk about that. I want somebody to pray for me. I just feel like I need to, feel like I just don't need to be alone right this second. Well, I, I urge you to, to listen to that prompting. If you're with somebody, they'll wait for you. It's okay. But don't leave this morning without settling what it is that is unsettled in you. Father, I pray you'd do that for all of us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Mary.